Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that there is no mountain cedar in the new heavens and new earth. And that the pollen is just creation crying out for redemption. But not yet. Uh, good morning. I have a privilege here at Wayside. One of the things I get to do is lead our, our young adults ministry called Momentum. They sit over there. Yeah, there we go. And, and on Sundays, the last few weeks, we've begun a, a series on Christian apologetics and defending our faith. And so last week I taught a message titled Epistemology, Philosophy, Natural Revelation, and Other Fun Stuff. With the tagline, how do I know what I know that I know is true. And while I know that title sounds amazing, and you guys are broken hearted that you were not able to attend, I just want you to know that in reality, I was just kind of going for the longest title possible. And it took us the whole class just to get through that. But I wanted to tell you that because as part of that talk towards the end, One of the things I did is I had a slide where I listed the top 10 reasons for why I believe in the truth of Christianity. The 10 reasons why, the 10 reasons, personal reasons why I most affirm the gospel apart from the obvious truth that the Spirit of God moved in me and enabled me to come to that place of belief. And so as part of my top 10 list, I listed things like the evidence for the resurrection. I listed things like the the prophetic fulfillment in scripture. I listed my own personal point time of salvation and experience when I came to faith and the subsequent spiritual growth that came after that. We talked about some of the great natural arguments for God that have been used and ones that I love like the moral argument for God or the cosmological argument for God. We spoke of the historicity of the scriptures. We spoke of how Christianity answers the major questions of life, of origin, purpose, morality, and destiny. I even told the group that one of my top 10 reasons that I believe in the gospel is because I met a young gal across the street when I was nine years old named Victoria Elizabeth Gallegos. And she ultimately said yes to me when I asked her to marry me, which was clearly an act of divine intervention from a God of grace and love, right? And so while these things, and I found these things to be persuasive, they are far from being exhaustive. And as a matter of fact, last week there were two other things that I spoke of that are things that bubble up from our text this morning in the book of Acts in chapter 5. And the first of those that I want to point out that I think is a great evidence for the reality and the truth of Christianity is the rise of the church in the face of great opposition. The rise of the church in the face of great opposition. And then that is tied to and connected to the response of the apostles in the, in the midst of great persecution. So we have the rise of the church in the face of great opposition connected to the response of the apostles in the midst of great persecution. And I want to take a few minutes and unpack that a little bit. Now, in regards to the miraculous rise of the church, I actually spoke about this a few weeks ago when I compared the story of Jesus Christ and his church to that of Rocky Balboa. And I said they both are stories that that talk about an unlikely hero from an unlikely place that achieved unlikely greatness in never-before-seen way. And we said that's the story of Christ and his church. But there was something that I left out that I want to talk about this morning. 
Something that's important for us to understand and to remember. And the point is this, is that the birth of the church was also the birth of the persecuted church. They were one and the same. The church was born and the church grew in the face of tremendous opposition. The church is that miracle baby that should have never had a chance to survive through infancy. And yet it not only survived, it thrived. And as Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And true to his word, here we are. 2,000 years after he said those words, over 8,000 miles from where he said those words. And we're still here, just like he said we'd be. And what is remarkable is not only the rise of the church, but the people that God used and empowered to bring about that rise. Because the rise of the church in the face of opposition is a result of and is connected to the response of the apostles in the midst of persecution. And if Jesus was an unlikely hero, then what in the world can we say about the apostles? John, Pastor John MacArthur, in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, describes him this way. Jesus didn't look within the religious establishment to build his team. Instead, he assembled a ragtag bunch of folks with unimpressive resumes. The, uh, the apostles are not the dream team. They look more like the bad news bears, right? Just think about it. James and John, two uneducated fishermen who had a nickname as the sons of thunder because of their horrible temper. A man despised by all, a tax collector named Matthew. Simon the zealot who's interested in killing Roman soldiers, a bigot named Nathaniel who says, what good can come from Nazareth? And those are some of the better ones. <laughs> and then we have Peter. Good old Peter. So brash and so bold, yet so fearful and faint-hearted. So much so, the night when his Savior needed him the most... He denies that he even knows him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And I want us to think about these guys for a second. These guys spent three years with Jesus. He, Jesus took them on the greatest adventure they had ever been on. Think of the things they saw. Healing the sick. Feeding the thousands. Calming the storm, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead. And when he needs them the most, when the going gets tough, they bolt. And they run away. And they hide. There's only one there at the crucifixion, the Apostle John. The rest are hiding in shame. And our brother Peter, who the night before the very night before, has said, I will never leave you. I will never disown you. I will never disown you, Jesus. He was nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. And what is amazing, 
What is truly remarkable to think about is these 10 guys, these 11 guys who skedaddled and ran away because of the danger associated with the crucifixion are going to turn back around and run right back into the eye of the storm and the danger to come in the days and weeks and months and years to follow. And the obvious question is why? Why? What changed? And I think the answer is pretty simple. They saw the resurrected Lord. They spent time with the glorified Jesus. They touched him. They walked with him. They ate with him. As John says, as he opens up his letter of 1 John, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, they were witnesses to the resurrection. And they went on to proclaim with one voice for the rest of their life the greatest news and the greatest truth that had ever been uttered, which is He is risen. And those who were covered in cowardice on Good Friday were transformed by the truth of the resurrection that Easter morning. And they were never, ever the same. They were never the same. The ten disciples that ran from the crucifixion willingly go to their death because of the resurrection. You know, it's often said that no one would die for a lie. But that's not really true, is it? People do it all the time. I think an obvious one would be 9-11. Those hijackers who hijacked those planes and committed those horrible, horrible acts, those horrible atrocities. They died believing a lie. They thought what they were doing was noble and good and of value. Many people die for a lie believing it to be true. But how many people die for a lie they know not to be true? That's the issue. That is the question. You see, this wasn't just a faith thing for the apostles. They had seen the resurrected Jesus. They had spent time with him. And if they had not seen the resurrected Lord, why in the world would they all die a martyr's death proclaiming that they had? The disciples who deserted Jesus in contempt went to their death with confidence because they not only believed the gospel to be true, they knew it to be true. They knew it to be true. And when we, who sit here 2,000 years later, know the gospel to be true, live knowing the gospel is real, we then have the freedom and the boldness and the courage to live life in a radically new way, untethered by the fears and the expectations of society and of our society and able to align ourselves completely with the will of God. And this morning's passage in the book of Acts is a beautiful picture of that. It is a beautiful illustration of a transformed life by the truth of the resurrection and the boldness that it brings. So if you'll turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5, starting in verse 12, we're going to pick up there. Well, starting in verse 12, directly after the tragic events of Ananias and Sapphira, God, <clears throat> excuse me, God is continuing 
to establish his church. He's continuing to, to establish his church in Jerusalem there, moving through the, uh, the apostles, accomplishing ministry by the apostles, and God is showing himself in them through signs and wonders. People are getting healed. Miracles are happening. The church is growing. The movement's gaining steam. People are even so convinced of what's going on, they're trying to get in Peter's shadow because they think that if they can just get in his shadow, they'll have the chance of getting healed. That's what we're looking at. But not everybody is impressed and not everybody's excited by what's going on. Verse 17 says this, But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and they put them in a public jail. Now as you read the book of Acts, you may find that the main antagonist of the early church is actually a group of people called the Sadducees. Now when you think about the ministry of Jesus he butted heads the most with a group called the Pharisees. And though these groups conspired together to crucify Jesus, they actually had very di big differences between the two groups, politically, economically, socially, and theologically. When you think of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the middle-class, hyper-religious legalists of the day. Who, but they were respected and admired by the people because of their zeal, because of their religious passion. So therefore, while they made up a minority of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, they exerted great influence there because of the respect they garnered. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are the aristocratic, wealthy, religious liberals of the day. They were cozy with the Roman government and were more concerned with politics than religion. And because of that wealth and because of that weakness and their, their coziness with the Roman government, they were not as respected and not as admired by the common person. And so these two groups, though these two groups had distinct differences, economically and socially and politically, maybe the greatest differences between them was actually doctrinal and theological. We don't have time to unpack all of this, but let me give you a few of the beliefs about the Sadducees that you would find important to know. Number one, the Sadducees were basically deist. And they viewed God as being completely hands-off in the day-to-day -day activities of the world. Secondly, and this is significant, the Sadducees did not believe in bodily resurrection. They did not believe in such a thing. No bodily resurrection. Thirdly, thirdly they did not believe in the afterlife. But your soul perished at death. No eternal judgment for good or for bad. And fourthly, they denied the spiritual realm. No such thing as angels. No such thing as demons. So we can see why they are so concerned with what is happening in the early church. Because miracles are happening. A movement is gaining steam that the Roman Empire is going to have to deal with. And not only that, what's the core message of the movement? Resurrection. A resurrected Jesus. So they've got to deal with this. And what they decide to do is take the apostles and throw them in prison. But as the apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy, where he writes, Though I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal, the word of God is not imprisoned. And for Peter and the apostles, the word of God is not imprisoned because an angel of God is coming to break them out. This is prison break angelic style right here <laughs> look at verse 19 it says but during the night 
an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. This is one of my favorite phrases in the entire book of Acts. The angel breaks them out and he gives them one mission. He says, I want you to speak to the people about the whole message of this life. Meaning the message of salvation. Meaning the gospel. Do you know that when we offer people the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are offering them the message and the meaning of this life? All of humanity is engaged in a quest. A quest for meaning. All of humanity is engaged in this quest for meaning and what is the message of this life. Because you see, we as humans are born with that. It is innate to us. We have an innate understanding. We know that there's some purpose to our existence. We know it. That there's something out there or someone out there that gives meaning to what is happening right here in my life and in my world. Even those who suppress this knowledge, even those who deny God and deny the afterlife, live as if meaning and morality and truth and goodness and beauty and love exist. And the reason is because we know it intuitively. We know it in our bones. The scriptures say that God has set eternity in our hearts. He has set eternity in our hearts. And because of that, we know that life has meaning and purpose. We know that this is not all there is. And yet we don't know how to make sense of it all. So we engage in this quest, seeking to find the source of the one thing that we know we are in need of, meaning. And we end up looking for it in all kinds of things and in all kinds of places. We look for it in things like money and power and sex, and success. We look for it in the world of pornography, and fitness, and beauty, and pleasure, and drugs, and the list goes on. Not understanding the whole time that these cravings of our flesh are just misguided longings of our soul. They're just misguided longings of our soul. The longing to be known the longing to be loved, the longing for intimacy, the longing to matter. So we misplace these longings all the while, hoping that somehow, some way, they will satisfy us and make sense of this thing we call life, but they don't. As Tim Keller says, they are counterfeit gods. They're counterfeit gods. Because the message of this life The meaning of this life is found in a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the message and the meaning of this life. And just like the apostles who were freed from prison so that they might enter the temple and proclaim this message. Those of us here who have been freed from the prison and shackles of sin and hopelessness were done so, so that we might proclaim this message with our lives. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Amen? Now, as we come to this next scene in the passage, it's really pretty classic. Don't think that God doesn't have a sense of humor, okay? Because this is pure comedy. You follow me here. The Sanhedrin gathers together and they ask for the prisoners to be brought to them. So they tell the guards, go get the prisoners. Go get the apostles. So the guards go over there. But there's a major problem. The apostles aren't there. And this is an issue. Look at verse 21. It says, now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together. Even all the senate of the sons of Israel and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back. Once you think about these guys, you almost feel sorry for them. Verse 23 saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened it up, we found no one inside. Picture that. That is Fantastic. Fantastic, right? Maybe you've had a similar situation with a boss or authority where you were supposed to bring something. They asked you to bring something that you were in charge of and yet you had no idea where it was or you did not possess what it was that you were supposed to possess. As I was reading this passage this week and thinking through this scene, I reflected upon one of my worst days of my coaching career. It was my third year coaching at O'Connor High School. I was coaching varsity defensive backs, but I was also the illustri- had the illustrious position as, as the head freshman football coach. So one Thursday afternoon where it was about 200 degrees, I took 100 freshmen to Laredo, Texas, where it was about 2,000 degrees. And we played Laredo Alexander back-to-back games, incredibly hot, incredibly long. We beat them by like 100 Bring our crew back, get back to school after midnight, make sure all the freshmen get picked up and get home, get home after 1 a.m., get a few hours of sleep, come back to school the next day because Friday is when the varsity team plays. Load up the bus, go to Laredo. It's 3,000 degrees this day. Beat Laredo Alexander, come back home. Get home after 1 a.m., man, I just want to go home, see my new bride, Victoria, get a few hours of sleep before i got to come in and do film work on Saturday. And that's when the question comes. Coach looks at Nathan Braun and myself, who happen to be the two who are in charge of trading game films with opposing coaches. And Coach says, where's the game film? I go to my bag. Please, please, please. Nope. I look at Nathan. He goes to his bag. Nope. I look at Nathan. He looks at me. We look at coach. Coach looks at us. And then we look at the truck because we're going back to Laredo. <laughs> Third trip in 36 hours. We leave about 1.30, knock down about six Red Bulls or something. Seeing spiders on the dashboard. I mean, it's... Not a good situation. We arrive at Laredo after four. We meet the opposing coach in an abandoned jack-in-the-box parking lot. <laughs> we trade film. Barely a word is uttered. Probably looks like a drug deal or something. <laughs> we get back in our car, drive all the way back to San Antonio, get home after seven, load the film, make the cuts. Kids come at 10, work all day Saturday on next week's opponent. I went home that night. I went to sleep. Woke up six years later on staff at Wayside. No lie. No lie. So, 
Praise God. Praise God. That's what it took. I know that story is kind of comical. I mean, it wasn't at the time. But that's the scene here. And God has a sense of humor. And it's on display in this passage. And while I was just going to retrieve game film, they've got to go get the apostles. And while I just went to a vacant jack-in-the-box, they've got to go to a temple, the temple full of people. Look at verse 24. It says, Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, uh, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. <laughs> then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then verse 29 says, But Peter and the apostles answered. I want to pause. You remember Peter hiding. You remember the apostles running away. And here they stand in front of the same council that convicted their Lord. And this is what Peter says. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted at his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. That is transformation. But that is what the reality of the resurrection will do to you. That is what true belief in the gospel produces. Because when you embrace the meaning of this life, your mission becomes proclaiming the message of this life. No matter the cost, no matter the consequences. When you embrace the meaning of this life, life with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, your mission then becomes proclaiming the message of this life, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences. And while we might be impressed with this, the Sanhedrin is not. And this response by Peter and the apostles infuriates, infuriates the council to such an extent where they want to kill them. And this is where a major curveball comes in, and it's just beautiful. God uses a man to halt the violence. A Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. The same Gamaliel who was the primary teacher of a bright, young, zealous Jew named Saul, who we come to know as the Apostle Paul. Isn't that not amazing? God uses one of the greatest thinkers in the history of Judaism to protect the church. God is sovereign and he is good and he is faithful and that is amazing. And God can use anyone, anywhere to accomplish anything for his purpose. And so Gamaliel shows great wisdom and he encourages the leaders to not kill the apostles. And this is the reasoning he uses. He goes, listen, guys, listen. If their movement dies off, 
Just let it go. And if it dies off, it will show that it was not legit, just like all the others who've come before them. It's going to die off. It's going to fade away. And if it does, it proves that it wasn't of God. But if this thing doesn't die off, and if this thing keeps going, then we better be careful. Because we may be found to be fighting against God. How wise is that? And how prophetic does that prove to be? And the miraculously, they take his advice. Verse 40 states, they took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. It's the first time someone experiences violence for their faith in Jesus in the scriptures. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It says they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. How can one rejoice in the midst of suffering and shame? Because when you embrace the true meaning of this life, your mission then becomes communicating and proclaiming the true message of this life, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the cost of discipleship, and this is how the church was born. The church was born in the face of great opposition because the church responded with faith and boldness in the midst of great persecution. Knowing that what they had in Jesus was far greater than anything the world could offer or take away. Knowing that what they had in Jesus was greater than anything that the world could offer or take away. And my question is, what about us? What about us? We are blessed to live in a country that despite some of its shortcomings, has afforded us a place to freely gather and worship on the Lord's Day and on any other day. And we gather here this morning not in fear of violence or in fear of our families being hurt or in fear of our property being seized. No. And I thank the hundreds and thousands and millions of men and women who have given their life for the cause of freedom, who've given their life so that we may gather in freedom to worship God. And some of you who have given members of your family and given of yourselves and committed your lives to serving our country, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. And yet the truth of the matter is that this is not the case for so many around the world. So many of our brothers and sisters. Because the persecuted church did not die when the apostles died. The persecuted church that was birthed in the book of Acts continues to this day. Next Saturday and Sunday as part of our Global Missions Weekend, we're going to have the opportunity to hear from two individuals that I'm excited about. Two guys who are partners with who are from our, one of our partnership ministries, Israel College of the Bible. One is a Christian Jew and another is a Christian Arab. And they're going to have a workshop Saturday morning. They're going to be preaching on Sunday. And I am looking forward to hearing from these guys who know what it's like to follow Jesus 
and a culture and in families and in an area that is antagonistic to their faith. Though we may not here in America experience Acts 5 persecution, at least not yet, like what we see in the Scripture, according to Open Doors USA, a magnificent organization that works tirelessly working for the persecuted church, 2015 was the worst year on record for Christian persecution. It was the worst year on record. Would you take a look at this video? Christian persecution is increasing. The scale and dynamics of Christian persecution has changed and grown drastically. Millions of Christians are persecuted for their faith worldwide, in more countries and in more ways than ever before. How can you measure this increase in persecution? For over 20 years, Open Doors has been producing the World Watch List, which ranks the countries where it is most difficult to be a Christian. This well-researched report is compiled by a group of regional experts, audited by an outside organization specializing in religious freedom, and it is credited as the best and most authoritative report of its kind. Through on-the-ground interviews and data analysis, the list provides an accurate picture of the difficulties persecuted Christians experience around the world. The list looks at and measures the types of persecution believers experience from the government, the community, and even their own families. But the list is not just numbers and figures. It represents those who have decided to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost may be. We've seen an unprecedented rise in persecution, especially in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa. Based on the raw data and recent global events, it will likely get worse. In 2016, Iraq has moved to number two on the list. Iraq has seen tens of thousands of Christians forced to flee their homes because of the terror of ISIS. Many have been displaced for over a year now, burdened with the struggle of daily living as they face an uncertain future. Eritrea, ranked number three, has had one of the most dramatic jumps in rank. Christians suffer intense persecution in all spheres of life. Believers face violence and imprisonment in horrific conditions, some being locked inside metal shipping containers. Uzbekistan, ranked at number 15, has one of the harshest dictatorships in Central Asia. Because of the constant pressure and surveillance, it is almost impossible for Christians to display or share their faith. We believe there is only one body of Christ, and when one part suffers, every part suffers. We hope you feel called to learn more and pray for the millions of believers around the world where persecution is a daily reality. You know, if I'm going to be honest, I've done a poor job in this area. And I've personally neglected the persecuted church, but not anymore. My family has made a commitment in 2016 that we are going to specifically pray for and engage the persecuted church around the world. We're going to pray for those 50 countries. Open Doors has a wonderful website that offers prayer points for each country, some of the history, the demographic breakdown, even videos of those who have been persecuted in those countries, and it's, it's powerful. So my family, we get on the iPad and we just sit with the boys and we pray through this stuff. We engage our brothers and sisters around the world who are hurting. 
As I was praying in preparation for this sermon, I really wanted to leave us kind of with two thoughts, two challenges. The first thing I really wanted to do was remind us that the persecuted apostles of the early persecuted church show us, show us how to walk in faith and to walk in belief and to walk in boldness and to walk in courage and to renew our commitment to Christ no matter the cost, for he is worth it. Secondly, I wanted to remind us that the persecuted church has not disappeared. Just because it's not in our backyard does not mean it doesn't exist. What The church that was persecuted that began in the book of Acts exists to this day. And they need our prayers. They need our support. They need our advocacy. They need the church. Hebrews 13.3 states, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. When one member hurts, all of us hurt. And we have family that are hurting. We have family that are in chains. We have family whose families are being broken apart. We have families that are being killed for their faith, and they need our prayers for strength, for faith, for boldness, for freedom, and in the midst of their suffering, pray that they would be reminded and encouraged of those who went before who rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. We're going to close today a little bit differently. Instead of singing a song, I came across another video recently that really pierced my heart and I think really speaks to the things that we tried to hit on this morning. So I want to invite you to watch this video. There's a true story of a small village in India. And in this village, there was this family that came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This agitated the village so much and everybody became so upset that an angry mob gathered and shoved them into the public square. The village chief confronted them and he said to the man, if you and your family will not recant your faith, you all will surely die. The man didn't know what to say or what to do. And so the only thing that came to mind for him were the words of a song that he himself had composed when he had first surrendered his life to God. And so he began to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And with that, horrifically, his children were killed. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He was
was given another chance, this time with his wife's life on the line. And yet he continued to sing, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. After her tragic death, he was given one final opportunity this time to save himself. And yet he continued to sing. Cross before me, the world behind. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No Even though that man and his family died on that day, something remarkable happened. A seed was planted in the heart of that village chief, a seed that began to grow over time, and eventually he called the community together in that very same neighborhood, in that very same square, and he renounced his former faith and declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And a celebration broke out in that moment, and the gospel began to flourish and to grow in that community, not just in that village, but across the whole region. Because they had seen real faith, and they knew the true character of God because of a family that believed and sacrificed, even under the penalty of death. cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning as your children, imperfect, but perfect in your eyes because of your perfect son. And I confess before you, God, and before this family that we call Wayside Chapel that I need more courage and that I need more boldness. God, I want to have faith like that. Grow me up into the man that you desire me to be. Grow us up into the church you desire us to be. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room right now who's been on that quest for meaning and has looked in all the wrong places, God, I pray that you would whisper that sweet whisper into their ear that you love them and that they do have meaning because they're made by you 
And they were created by, for a relationship with you. And that though we sabotage that with sin, you came down to earth and took care of it on the cross. And that if we respond with faith, if we believe, God, that you did what you said you did, God, you would seal us for all eternity and you would give us a new life here on this earth. And I pray if there's anybody here, God, that you would move in their heart in a mighty way and that you would call them home. For the rest of us, God, may we learn to respond to your love with love for you. Love that you energize in us by your spirit. And may we come to the recognition that there's nothing that the world can offer or take away that is better than you. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you guys next week. Uh, Great weekend with our friends coming from Israel. And I hope you'll be here and join us.